And uh, here at Wilton, joining me is John and Paul. And joining us on Zoom, we have uh, Rannigan, Mark, and Keith. So after last Thursday, I decided it would be a very worthwhile endeavor if we just kind of hit the pause button with the uh, the Coben commentaries on the Heart Sutra and, and stayed with uh, his chapter on karma, but going beyond the contents of that chapter now, uh, just to take a deeper look at this mysterious subject that's that's referred to as karma. Uh, one of those terms that has kind of been taken on by Western culture and yet uh, understood by few. <laughs> and one of the causes for the confusion is it does have different meanings. So uh, we're going to be focused on the meaning it has within Buddhism. And this, this is pretty, uh, pretty consistent regardless of the particular school of Buddhism. Uh, how, some, how schools view karma and its relationship to like the Prajnaparamita literature there's some variance there, and uh, I'll have occasion to get into that. But uh, as far as the basic notion of karma itself, uh, that's that's pretty consistent. And I seem like to begin uh, our talk tonight, maybe the best source for me to reference would be the uh, the Shambhala Dictionary of Buddhism and Zen. Uh, you want to look up a term like karma? This is, this is the place. This is a pretty, pretty essential text, uh, especially for teachers. Uh, so here's the entry for karma. Universal law of cause and effect, which according to the Buddhist view, takes effect in the following way. The deed, karma, produces a fruit under certain circumstances. When it is ripe, then it falls upon the one responsible. For a deed to produce its fruit, it must be morally good or bad and be conditioned by a volitional impulse, which in that, it leaves a trace in the psyche of the doer, leads his destiny in the direction determined by the effect of the deed. Since the time of ripening generally exceeds a lifespan, the effect of actions is necessarily one or more rebirths, which together constitute the cycle of existence or samsara. The effect of an action, which can be of the nature of body, speech, or mind, or thought, is not primarily determined by the act itself, but rather particularly by the intention of the action. It is the intention of actions that cause a karmic effect to arise. When a deed cannot be carried out, but the intention toward it exists, this alone produces an effect. Only a deed that is free from desire, hate, and delusion is without karmic effect. In this connection, it should be noted that also good deeds bring rewards, engender karma, and thus renewed rebirth. In order to liberate oneself from the cycle of rebirth, one must refrain from both good and bad deeds. So this kind of spins people's heads around a bit because we have 
a really clear sense of good, good karma, bad karma, striving for one and trying to avoid the other. And I mean, certainly any Buddhist teacher is going to say good karma is far preferable to bad karma. But in terms of liberation, in terms of prajna, it's going beyond intentions. So when we talk about letting go, which is a favorite term of mine, subject of mine, that's what's being referred to. We're letting go of everything even our good intentions, because they are, they remain intentions. And we're, we're going to be looking into that in greater depth here this evening. But one helpful way, I think, to approach this and to always keep in mind is intentions are always rooted in the sense of self, the intender. There's self and the object that is intended that you're hoping to accomplish. Prajna is to eliminate that gap. There is no distance. There's no separation. It's by realizing that, that bad karma clearly uh, drops off. Because that we can see more clearly is based upon delusion, about, upon that separation. You know, greed, hatred, and ignorance itself, which is to ignore the, the emptiness of all things, to see them as separate things. Therefore, things that we can either want, desire, or have an aversion for. And it's based on those responses in terms of the flavor of our karma, whether it's, it's of the, uh, the uh, strong desire, the greed, or the hatred, the anger. And good karma is still karma. So it can be helpful to people. So it's not that we should avoid good karma, see it as some sort of a negative thing. But we should see it as karma, which is not, it's still off this path of non-duality and of full realization of the, the true nature of all things. So that is the short and sweet of it, of, of the, the official Buddhist definition of karma and, and how it's, it's intimately connected to this practice of intention, intentionality. John? I don't know if you want to report that. Yeah, it's probably not a bad idea. I'm going to go back to the two examples that we talked about last week of the, from Dino, both from Dino Lurie, right. one from you and one from me. Yeah. Um, but let me go back, going to back to the idea. So there is karma with the people who drop the hay in for the deep because they intended to do good. That's right. But the guy driving down the road with a wagon full of hay and he doesn't even see it and a bale of hay drops off and then he recently dies, there's no karma. That's right. That's right. Okay. Is it karma then much more intention as opposed? I mean, we talk about it being cause and effect, but it's really intention. It's intention. It's just 
the root of karma. As a part of cause. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the way to see it. Karma is like a, a one subgroup within cause and effect. It's not the whole thing. Actually, there are myriad causes and conditions, which because of the misunderstanding of karma, even among Buddhists, can can end up uh, with some kind of weird notions. Take disease, illness, for example. Many might see mm -hmm. that as the result of karma. So in our current scientific understanding, that's a bit of a head scratch. It's like, no, it's, it might even be genetic. <laughs> but nobody intended this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are causes and conditions that have nothing to do with intention. Because when we place it, when we make it, as many do, a kind of like uh, a cosmic system of, of ultimate justice is karma. Right. That's a common uh, basic understanding yeah. of it. And then what you end up doing in instances where somebody uh, causes and conditions come together causing harm to that person, let's say rape, for instance, you're blaming the victim. Well, it's it's their karma. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. So, yeah. I mean, I can remember hearing a Buddhist speaker uh, not too long after 9-11 talking about the karma of the people that were in the World Trade Center. And I'm just smacking myself, biting Seriously. my tongue real hard. I mean, but... That's not an unusual take away from that. It, yeah, yeah. So there, there's that uh, broad misunderstanding of karma as being all causes and conditions. And it, I'm asking this, I'm saying it as a statement, but I'm asking, it, it seems to me then that the results of karma only come back to us. Well, they, they affect others. And take 9-11, for example. I mean, it's not that that's not an instance of karma, but it's not karma that was brought on by the people that were in the planes or in the World Trade Center. It was It's being part of this collective karma. We also mentioned last week the difference between individual karma and collective karma. So there, there was certainly these were intentional acts, but they were they were removed from the people who actually were killed as a result. It, it wasn't their intention, whether it's past or present, that brought that about, other than the fact that. As, as we say, they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but that was the extent of their wrongdoing. And I, so, yeah, I mean, what happens affects that. But then I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how karma comes back. So, yeah, it comes back. You know, kind of the, what goes far. around comes around. Well, aspect not even necessarily that, but what is it? I do something that has bad karma. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Well, I mean, I, I know we're we're talking about it's not. You know, I don't walk out and get hit by a car because I right exactly exactly. But what does what does that karma? Okay. That bad karma. Yeah. What's the downstream of that? Right. And because it's it's intentional on our part, it's, it involves some intentionality. Uh, if we move ahead to the third turning of the Dharma wheel, the Yogacara, I think that can be helpful to shed some 
some light on a, a way of seeing that with the uh, eight consciousnesses and the storehouse consciousness where these intentions of ours, and they all too often kind of create almost what we call it habitual practices. But even if they're just standalone, they're all planting seeds for future activity and events for us. Everything we do it, it falls into that uh, uh, mm -hmm. Alaya Vijnana, that the, uh, so it goes into the store. storehouse. Exactly. And from there, it's a, it's a seed planted for self-propagation. And those seeds that are constantly being nurtured and practiced, and a lot of our bad karma, I mean, think of addictive behavior, falls into that uh, category. Uh, Probably the archetype of that. And then you can more clearly see how it continues to come back again and again and again, affecting self and others, but clearly affecting self too. So the, the good or bad karma becomes a seed within the store. Right, right. Right. And depending on how many good seeds and bad seeds you have. Yeah. In terms of how they are interacting. So there it becomes more, uh, it fits into the, uh, the broader Mahayana view of interdependence. In terms of many things coming together and creating certain situations, scenarios. That makes me okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay, Sorry. good. Yeah, because yeah. the one, the other misuse of karma is to see it as this real simplified linear thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that should be a red flag right away. Yeah. We should know with a little bit of prajna. <laughs> no, reality, generally speaking, isn't that way. Nothing's that simple. Yeah, exactly. Unless you you don't want to really look into it and you're looking for a simple answer. Then simple answers will always present themselves for you. They can be found. But just don't dig into them too far. <laughs> they don't hold up very well. Or they lead you to some results that convince you that, well, this, this can't be the right path. <laughs> like blaming the victim if it's their karma. As long as One of the things you said, Dean, was. Um, Prashna is to eliminate, is the word, and I didn't get the last word, intention? Right, right. So intention is based upon uh, the separation between the uh, person intending and the result that's being intended, that there's a separation there. So, so Prashna is... Without intention. Exactly. So prajna, what we keep uh, periodically coming back to this, this uh, description of our practice as just being fully present right here. And without this uh, uh, impulse to, to try and achieve some objective, uh, where there is some, uh, some definite differences of opinion uh, between different Buddhist traditions, which we will get into, because not everybody within Buddhism is comfortable with this notion of prajna as grounding our uh, uh, virtuous practice. 
So in fact, uh, representing the Zen point of view, I'm gonna go ahead and, and read this now because we're going to get into this piece, I'm quite certain uh, before we're finished tonight. So let's start off since we've kind of touched on this subject. Uh, give you, this is from Reb Anderson's Warm Smiles from Cold Mountains. He says, I will vow to trust that all sentient beings meet in my life as my life. All sentient beings. And he goes on to say, I will witness the arrival of all things as my life. And of course, our life is always taking place right now, right here. Furthermore, he says, what will be your vow? Do you want to commit yourself to the way of Buddha, the way that all sentient beings practice together? Because that's what he's laying out here is uh, a description of what it is to practice together. All sentient beings coming together in, in our life. Or do you wish to continue an ancient karmic pattern of living by your own willpower. So that's how Rev is <laughs> setting this up. And we're gonna look at uh, somebody coming from, uh, from insight meditation of a Vipassana side uh, who, who takes a different view of it, that actually uh, this willpower thing really needs to be given priority. And what Reb is teaching, which is pretty basic Zen understanding, is that we have, this is part of our practice, is getting beyond this individual willpower, which from the standpoint of karma can be driven by good karma. You can have the best of intentions. And it, as I said earlier, it's not knocking that. That's, that's perfectly good. I would never dissuade somebody from practicing good karma. <laughs> because we are still in the samsaric realm. Unless somebody's really achieved that Harry Nirvana, that uh, the final cessation of all of all things. Otherwise, we're still in the world where we have to treat things separately in that in their relative aspect. So we we do have agency, we can call the sense of, of acting. But so from the standpoint of Prajna, it's seen through that yes, I do that. But I also understand that ultimately there is no separation. And when we can do that, see, we can then, uh, instead of opening the hand of thought, we can open the hand of karma. Because people can get so caught up in their good karma that they can become these righteous warriors. <laughs> and that can become a real, real problem. Mm -hmm. So to open the hand of karma means we can continue to practice agency in the, in the world. We need to. We should. But we can do it with prajna and recognize that ultimately there is no separate goal to be achieved. That's, that's just taking care of what's right here is what it all basically comes down to. And as Reb so eloquently puts it here, what's appearing right here is all sentient beings together. 
in, in my life, in your life. So if they're all right here, we're all together, then by taking care of this, I, I'm, I'm taking care as directly as possible of whatever needs to be cared for without that sense of separation, of me acting as an agent to accomplish something separate from myself. So that's where our tradition and these teachings of Prajnaparamita match up with karma. Karma is part of the conventional relative world. Definitely. That's why the fox color. I change instructions to the uh, to the fox appearing as the uh, the old monk uh, was you don't obscure or ignore causality. But with that proviso, his original response, uh, a common understanding that koan is that that original response the enlightened person isn't subject to causality that's a good response <laughs> but don't ignore because <laughs> it's Not still good enough. Right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but if you're if you really were were dwelling in emptiness you wouldn't be here looking for, for something different. You'd recognize the, the wonder, the beauty of, of that fox existence, of whatever the existence was. But dualities and strivings are constantly finding their way into teachings. It's not because teachers are lacking, it's because these things are deeply rooted within us. So actually, uh, maybe one of the greatest benefits to an intensive study of Prajnaparamita is to be able to see when that's happening, not just outside of us, but within ourselves too. So anytime I see that from another teacher, you know, it just kind of highlights for me. I can, I respond that way sometimes, <laughs> but because I'm sitting here uh, studying and preparing talks on this subject, now I'm really I'm in Prajna, so I it kind of becomes apparent to me. But in a course of day to day life. Uh, Sometimes it's not so clear. But the more we bring our understanding of Krajna into our life, day after day, experience after experience, the more rooted we become with. And that becomes kind of the source of the light that we're shining on the events that arise in our world. So, but Buddhism, in fact, uh, one of the uh, uh, things that I, I encountered uh, that I relied on pretty heavily in, uh, in the study I did Preparing for tonight, I don't think I brought a copy of it, but uh, it was actually, I think the title of it was Karma and Intention, uh, uh, written by uh, Gil Fronstel from Insight Meditation Center. And if I'm remembering correctly, I, I'm pretty sure he has practiced Zen in the past too. So he's. Hmm. Hmm. He's well versed in, in both of those traditions. And uh, he begins his piece early on 
with uh, quotes from the Buddha. He says, Buddha said karma is intention. And then quoting from the Buddha uh, in one of his sutras, uh, he says, intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending, one does karma by way of body, speech, and intellect. These are the three ways that we are active in the world. And all of them are carriers of karma to the extent there's intention. And here, this is a really important point that I was just referencing uh, indirectly when I uh, read from uh, Reb's uh, Warm Smiles uh, from Cold Mountains. Uh, a number of Buddhist teachers, including the Dalai Lama, have been asked what is more important to understand the great philosophical Buddhist teachings about emptiness or to understand karma, to understand cause and effect. And the answer is that it is more important to understand karma, to understand cause and effect. That teaching is really much more essential. Without understanding karma, you will not understand where you have personal responsibility and how to take responsibility. Uh, and here was an instance where I, I saw this duality getting created between the teachings on emptiness and the teachings on karma. Uh, and so my, my reaction to it after reading it was that uh, uh, why can't these two teachings be equally important? I'm not trying to to find any one teaching that really is, is more important than, than the other. Uh, so, because to my mind, they truly both are important. And that's one of the things that I think always uh, drew me to the Fox <laughs> And ultimately, isn't there only just one teaching anyhow? Well, yeah, yeah, which can't be put into words. <laughs> just to put it in a literary form is to state it like the fun. Yeah. Uh, to try and describe it. So, but I can understand why teachers would would have that kind of a response because one could, could get lost in Prajnaparamita and not be able to function in the world where karma definitely is uh, a major factor that it's, it's good not to ignore <laughs> mm -hmm. because it will arise within our lives because of our intentionality and that of others. So we need to understand that. And it's, and it's true that Buddha uh, on several occasions talked about the centrality of, of cause and effect in Buddhism. But of course the teachings of emptiness are teachings of cause and effect. So even here, uh, so teachers who, who know the difference that cause and effect and karma aren't synonymous, but they can kind of slip into that. It's easy to have that. So my response to a question, what is more important? to understand the teachings of emptiness or cosmos out. They're both. Yes. 
<laughs> they are both really important. And the the whole notion, I, I also wanted to touch on here, uh, where it said that uh, without understanding karma, you will not understand where you have personal responsibility and how to take responsibility. Uh, it says some people who understand uh emptiness only, or some of the deeper teachings of Buddhism, will sometimes interpret that to mean that there is no personal responsibility. And this becomes a matter then of what one means by responsibility, because this is an important term in, in Zen, as I understand it. And its root is to respond. The ability to respond. So this Zen focus on what's present here and now, that's where our response is. It's not uh, aiming anywhere else. It's just right here. Our ability to respond is, has to be here. Otherwise, we're, we're automatically, almost by definition, missing the mark. We're aiming somewhere else. So, but we can take responsibility and turn it into almost an absolute. We know how that works. People's responsibilities. <laughs> and it almost becomes like the commandments. You know? These are the responsibilities. And that can be helpful, maybe, in some cases, as a skillful means to even in a, within an organization to assign general responsibilities. But the way they, even then, the way they actually get carried out successfully and enacted requires somebody to be able to set those aside. They're not absolutes. They can't be. It's a constant refrain as well. Nothing can work that way. That's not because that's not the nature of the real world. It can be helpful to codify something as a responsibility, but the reality is we have to be, if we're fully present with what's right in front of us, then our, that's where our focus is going. And we'll keep in bear in mind this kind of general responsibility. But most importantly, how do we take care of this? Rather than just being responsible from that boilerplate <laughs> And maybe that wasn't the best thing, but I was responsible. <laughs> that's, that's how responsible I am. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't even question. I'm, I'm just taking responsibility. And I'm taking responsibility for being responsible. <laughs> if it doesn't turn out right, I'm okay. And so on. So the, the, the word responsibility has always been a significant one to me when it comes back, is broken back down to its root of being able to respond. And to see that is such a key element of our practice is, is allowing us to be able to respond. Because so many teachings and religions can seem to almost cripple us. Part of Part of the reason why uh, Buddhism is this path of freedom and liberation, it's freedom and liberation to respond in this moment. See, there, there can be a notion 
that to do that is kind of scary. I get that. Yeah. That's scary for us to practice it initially at least. <laughs> like these. So we need our responsibilities just to put our mind at ease. Yeah, I know what I'm responsible for, and I'm going to make sure I take care of that. Imagine setting those aside and just taking care of through our understanding of prajna, of the interdependence. That opens things up tremendously. But that doesn't entail that it's just kind of loosey-goosey. Maybe I'll take care of it, maybe I won't. No. <laughs> Actually, uh, this, this is a practice about always taking care of. Always. But doing it, taking care of it, isn't in conflict with being liberated and free. In fact, those are qualities that typically enable us to take care of. Mark. Um, I just had a question. Is the saying uh, you reap what you sow, is that would that be considered a karmic type of phrase? I think so, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Certainly karma is not uh, uh, limited to, to Buddhism or Hinduism, which of course Buddhism is We can find that. In a lot, in a, even within the secular realm. I have another question um, regarding the universal law of cause and effect related to karma. Um, it so if if someone does something that's karmically immoral, is is the um, <clears throat> is the effect always? Um, so would that person, from a from a karma perspective, would that person always have at some point? somewhere along the line, a, a negative effect related to their deed, to their, to their immoral deed? Uh, a negative effect for themselves or that it's uh, a negative effect that's out there in, in the world? Because that makes a difference too. Oh, I'm thinking more along the line of retribution right the reaping what you saw in other words yeah because and and what i'm doing here in my mind is <laughs> thinking about putin and i'm like when is this guy gonna reap what he's sowing right because you know his his deed is so immoral and i mean how could you be any more um intentional with what he has done, you know, and lied about it from the get-go with amassing all of those troops at the border and saying, oh, no, no, we're just carrying out military pursuit, whatever. You know, it's like you could see the writing on the wall. <clears throat> it was so intentional and so, from a bodhisattva perspective, I don't want the negative karma of wishing ill will on this guy, but I kind of want a little bit of I want I want a little bit of reassurance that from a karmic perspective, you know, don't wish ill will on him because he's gonna get what's coming to him anyways from a karma perspective. So I can rest a little easier with. 
You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. And actually, that's one of the functions that that certain understandings of karma are, are supplying. They can be seen as supplying uh, what, what can be, a, for many of us, a comforting notion of this cosmic justice, that the world really is a just place, that people will reap what they sow. And so karma can be seen in that way and is by many people. It's the karmic justice that's kind of wired into the world. And I, I just, my, my impression of that has always been that that's, that's a mistaken notion. But more importantly is, I, I think, speaking of Buddhism overall, not just my response to it, but Buddhism, I, I don't think, takes that approach either. It's not about this kind of uh, retribution at the individual level. And one of the reasons why, uh, and the, the Shambhala definition referenced it, the fact that, that karma plays out over entire lifespans, multiple lifespans. Again, this can be seen as another way of, of, uh, of satisfying ourselves of cosmic justice. When we don't see any evidence of it here, then it would be like, well, maybe Putin gets off the hook in this lifetime. But boy, wait till he sees what he's reborn. <laughs> he wished he was a fox. <laughs> so there's that sense. And that's kind of baked into uh, some uh, of the beliefs out there uh, in rebirth. That that's carrying forward this cosmic justice. And I, I don't think that's helpful. I think the concern, just like right now, the concern, uh, it becomes too much about punishing Putin. Whereas the concern for a bodhisattva should be putting an end to this conflict. I don't care what happens to Putin. I just want people to stop being killed. That's where our attention should be and our focus should be. And most people uh, that are, are diplomats that have experience with negotiations realize that something's going to have to actually, rather than punishing Putin, we're going to have to make concessions to him. We're going to have to give him something. That's real politic, as they say. And from a, from a practical standpoint, that's really what I think we, we the, our focus absolutely needs to be, is on how do we bring this to an end? You know, whereas the, what's coming out of uh, the Capitol and the White House is all, all this stuff about we want a week in Russia, which means prolonging this war for years. That'll weaken them. That's what we want. That's really great, right? How many more tens and hundreds of thousands of people are going to have to die so we can accomplish that goal? So there's there's this simplicity of, of just dealing with what's happening right here and now. People are dying. And all this moralizing can get us way off track from where our focus absolutely has to be to alleviate the suffering that's going on. Not punishing. And that's, that's not the technique. It's kind of like our justice system. So, it's not about 
you know, we call these departments of rehabilitation, they're, they're departments of vengeance. And that, that hasn't served our, uh, <laughs> our society. Though. So you're saying, if I want to practice this path wholeheartedly, um, I need to let go of thoughts of punishment towards Putin. Really kind of like see them as thoughts and like the clouds or like the, you know, thoughts that pass in your mind when you're practicing Zazen. Let them identify them as a thought and not cling to um, the whole notion of. I would say yes. Yes, not cling to. And, and. Keep your focus on, on the, the dukkha that you're being responsive to. Don't be, be sidetracked from that into these paths about punishment. It's like punishing, you know, back in the Clinton years, punishing people with drugs who are addicted on drugs and sending them to prison rather than getting them to, to address the addiction. Because that, that propensity to punish is strong within us. And people will use that. The media will use it because we'll keep clicking on, on all the, the feeds we're getting because it, it does kind of there's almost something titillating about it. This person needs punishment. And I want to read about this. <laughs> As opposed to what's, what's the harm? Why do I feel that way? And let, let, what can I do to alleviate the dukkha? And set the punishment aside at least, because that's not the burning issue. The burning issue is... is the people that are suffering. And how can we take care of that? Because we, we're just constantly missing the boat. And it, it just happens time and time and time again. Yeah. Um, one thing to say, because I think like when we do the sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Yeah. It's not an aspect of them, so it's not like I vow to save them except to me. Right. That's right. You're trying to alleviate the suffering of all beings, including right. Right. that. So it's like placing him outside of your heart space as well. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So even from a practical standpoint, a negotiator going in there, has to have that set, that understanding that you know Putin needs to be served in this process. You know, we might not speak of it in terms of like saving him, but there's an aspect of that that we need to give him something. And if we go in there, just hell bent on punishment and and getting the bonfires started, then. We can't, that's, that's why I think that's a great example. Then we can't alleviate the suffering that's actually happened. We're so caught up in the need to punish and prosecuting war crimes and all of that. Which of course, in a, in a perfectly just world, all that should happen. They should be pr prosecuted. There are war crimes taking place. I, I would be the last one to deny that. But the most important thing right now is to stop all the killing and actually to include Putin in our bodhisattva vow is, is kind of necessary for that. So that's a good way of approaching it. I like that. Brandon. My question about this. Um, if you look at the broader view of what's happening as a um, 
conflict between um, democracy and oligarchy and um, the fact of compromising only um, slows it down for a little while because Putin will come back and want other countries. Yeah. Um, and it is a war. It's a it's like Star Wars. It's a war between the uh, you know, I, I feel as much as is wrong with democracy. Uh, it's more humanitarian in many ways um, than than oligarchy um, and, or autocracy. And to give, it, I, I'm not saying we should keep fighting, but I don't see an answer to it. Uh, and maybe it, the pendulum is just going to swing again. But that, that on the other, on the one hand, and the other hand is in this country, we the um, the the conservative right, um, the radical right, I should say, is trying to keep white supremacy um in in charge i mean really all the black people that are in jail so many of them are in jail uh, because slavery ended and they had to have a new way to keep them in line and so these are these questions are so huge so broad and when you say that about um ending the killing i don't know i i don't know if that's an answer if you, if you just give him some, and I, I do think he's humiliated. He's humiliated because um, USSR ended and he's trying to get it back to where it was. So if you placate him and give him some of it, then he's going to want more. Well, it's about I, greed. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds like a rehash of the old uh, uh, Cold War yeah. thing. We've got to stop them here. Or NATO was a good idea, you know, um, to preserve a way of life for many countries that didn't want to be autocratic. But now we're back to it. Right. And our country may follow, follow suit. It's the reality. So it's we're not uh, immune to that either. We've already had a close brush with it. So maybe NATO can come and save us. Yeah. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I think the most, the, the most important thing we can do, and this is where the teachings on emptiness are helpful, is to recognize all of these factors that come into play and the sources of the information that we are getting and how they fall into lockstep. Uh, especially when it comes to foreign policy folks. That, that this storyline has a long shelf life. <laughs> We've, we have gone through it, through, through the Cold War, and, and now it's coming back to us again. And to actually suggest a different perspective, that uh, if, if, uh, if Putin had troops in, in Central America, or maybe even Mexico, how would we respond to that? We need to, and I'm not saying how we need to respond to it, but we just need to be open to that, that we actually look at it through Russians' eyes, Russia's eyes. I see what you're saying. And um, the United States, it's one step forward and one step back, it seems to me. Um, even all the 100,000 Ukrainians are coming into the U.S. from the southern border. And believe, the, the people down on the border that have been waiting for years to get in, 
they they have to wait years and there's are there the ukrainians are already in and they're very resentful there's a lot of resentment about that we could understand that if we were in their position might feel much the same way yeah so all of the, it's it's the ambiguity <laughs> the fact that the more we look into things the more we realize that that to see things in a cut and dried way is, is missing an awful lot the, the reality is in the nuances because they are so many causes and conditions and so many different perspectives of limited views and to recognize my views limit and to keep opening that view and looking at other views. One way I could come to realize my limited view is to, to investigate how others are viewing and to try to kind of put myself in their shoes. That's an important part of, of practice, I think. Well, the causes of the conditions are really um, kind of interesting too, because if you think about like the Cold War, it, it was a war. We were very excited to see the Soviet Union talk. Something that took place in that country following you know that it's kind of like the, exactly you know, now you're looking 20 30 years later and this is some of the implications that come from it it's, it's, it's like, i think of violence to get more violence the whole war is just as violent as any other war right some of the actions that we did trying to fight Cambodia, oh, yeah. killing the children of cambodia and Ireland, you know this violence to get more violence right so it's right. not surprising that we're here right the whole world is Exactly. We do, and people cut us off on the road. We're violent then too. So, right. You know, it's, yeah. it's really easy to say uh, Putin, but there was thousands of Putin's just different levels. Oh, yeah. They're all all over, and us, us included, like myself included. You know, I have to check my own anger and my own tendency. Happens on bigger, right? Scale, but it's just it's scary when it's just you know violence because more violence in this country. Yeah. Thing. You know, and then you snuff out one by and then it's okay for a while, but it just yeah. simmers and simmers and simmers. And that's the perfect example of karma. <laughs> Since we're running late, we want to uh, get some closure here, but that's a perfect closing <laughs> moment is the fact that you know, violence be getting more violence and the intentionality that's always behind those acts of violence. And the basic idea that if you're violent with me, I'm going to be big enough that I can be even more violent. Exactly. Yep. 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 I've got more weapons. <laughs> and then Putin starts threatening he's going to unleash the nuclear uh, weapons. And it's just madness. Utter madness. And yet we still you know, keep, keep going back to that well time and time and time again. And yeah, absolutely. Our, our history is drenched in that. Murdering civilians. We hear about Putin doing that now. It's like, the murder. Well, there was war crimes tribunal back in the 60s. And we were the ones that were being charged. By the bombing of Dresden in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. They, they literally torched that whole seat. Exactly. Exactly. And it wasn't soldiers anywhere. Right. Right. Yep. So casualty involvements. And yeah, we're the only ones that have used nuclear weapons to this point. And even if you wanted to make a case for Hiroshima, there's still that matter of Nagasaki a few days later. So, I mean, it's all this karma 
this horrid negative karma. There's plenty enough of that to be spread around. And that's why globally, the, the southern half of, of this planet uh, doesn't, doesn't hold this country in very high regard. That's why, by and large, they're not taking sides in this affair of Russia and the U.S. They've seen enough from both sides. Yeah. And I think they're, they've got a pretty uh, good vantage point. And I think that's helpful and helpful to me to, to recognize that all our ancient twisted karma, uh, we should have a lot in common with, with Putin and the Russians in that regard. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and chant out. Very bad. Sorry. That's why it's there. We use it. I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings, to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume, to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations and my brothers and sisters of all species to support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. All right, well, good discussion tonight.